with that, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the uh, book of Acts, chapter 14. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. And as you guys are opening up there, um, I want to reiterate just something really brief uh, with regard to what I taught on last week. And I just kind of want to highlight this. If you guys were not here last week, uh, I would definitely encourage you to uh, maybe pick up the message, listen to it online. Um, it was kind of less of a message, more of a post-election address is kind of what we described it. Um, but there has been a verse that I've been kind of ruminating on this past week, and uh, I've been chewing on it, thinking about it. It's been giving me hope. Um, hopefully it might be a passage that would give you hope. Um, and it was just kind of one verse out of the entire message last week. So I just want you to think about this. It's the passage out of the book of Hebrews. He says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us... Be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And one of the things that we pointed out was this whole notion, this idea that our nation was, was shaken, all right? Um, and shaken in a horrible way if you were anti-Trump, in a great way if you were pro-Trump. And at the end of the day, we're not going to ask you which is which, but the point of the matter is, is that we have seen in the following days um, our nation shaken, people's lives shaken, in some ways even the world shaken by the events. And the point that I would make is that if you're a follower of Jesus, um, we don't have to be shaken. We don't have, you don't ha- that doesn't mean that you become callous to the fears, uh, either uh, real or perceived, of those within the world. doesn't mean that we should turn our back upon those that may be going through challenging times in processing all this. In fact, if anything, uh, understanding what kingdom you belong to should actually give you more compassion for the people that are fearful. More grace towards those people that are annoying to you. More love towards your enemy. And it boils down to what kingdom have you received? What kingdom are you and do you perceive yourself to be living in? If you perceive yourself as living within this kingdom and it is the most ultimate most powerful kingdom that you give your allegiance to then like i said your world will be shaken but if you receive the kingdom that jesus is giving like what the writer of hebrews says on here uh your your life will have a different level of balance and equilibrium and stability so let me read the passage to you again just to think about this because in some ways this is a great way to think about going into this week whereby our nation gets to celebrate this incredible holiday called Thanksgiving, which honestly I think is just great because it's all about giving thanks, which really is a Christian value. It's what we as followers of Jesus, we give thanks to a God. But here's what the writer of Hebrews says again. Let me read it to you. Just again, think about it. If you have found yourself in any way, shape, or form shaken in this world, listen to these words again. Receive these words as gifts from Jesus And let it inform and transform your heart. So listen to it again. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Receive that as a gift. All right? Um, that's just a warm-up to my message. You're welcome. Like that, that, was like, that was like a preface, everything. Sound good? All right. Let's, let's uh, if you guys aren't already there, Acts chapter 14. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. That's the real nitty-gritty. So we've been going through the book of Acts, and uh, we've been kind of just looking at it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and now we are in chapter 14. 
And what we did a couple weeks ago, because last week, like I said, we did a little bit of a post-election address. Um, Two weeks before, or I should say a week before that, which would have been two weeks ago right now, uh, we looked at the beginning of Acts chapter 14. One of the things that we said, first of all, is that it's a very lengthy chapter. And so I didn't want to teach through the entirety of it, so I decided to teach kind of read it. We just kind of read through the narrative, the story, made some comments as we made our way through it. And what I said is that after uh, this, the week after that, we would then begin to take a look at some traits, what we're calling uh, the message, traits of a disciple. Traits of a disciple. And that's kind of the title. And the reason why that's the title is because Acts chapter 14 is really this story that's just the kind of the, uh, like a journal. It's like a journal entry in the life of the early church. Like, here's what happened, you know, on day, you know, whatever, of the church. They, people were just going into the world, and here's what they were doing. And what we see about the life of two main characters in this chapter, uh, Paul, the apostle, is one of them. Another guy by the name of Barnabas is the other guy. They're going into territory that would have been considered called, there's a terminology that they would call it, it's pagan. Pagan territory would, would be what they would describe it. Now, pagan, um, when we think of pagan today, we think of maybe in a negative context, you're a pagan, you're a, you are a pagan. So we think of it in a very negative context. But the word pagan back in the day just basically meant a non-city dweller. And oftentimes, because they were non-city uh, dwellers, you know, living within the main centralized location or city, these people kind of had their own types of folk, folk religion. And, that, and everywhere you would go around in the ancient Roman Empire, you would come across these areas, these territories, where there was all forms of what cult, they describe them as like cult folk religion. And so these guys, uh, Paul and Barnabas, as they traveled... They wanted to communicate and to live out and to demonstrate this Jesus story that had transformed their lives. And so they basically were willing to hop in a boat and take that boat anywhere it took them. And then anywhere they landed, they saw this as their mission field. So these were just followers of Jesus living their lives as Jesus people anywhere they went and communicated and lived out and embodied what the gospel looked like in their lives. And so what we see in the story is not like, you know, eight points of how to live as a disciple. You don't see that. What you do see is just the common, normal life of Paul and Barnabas. And from that, as I, as I read through the story, there's at least eight different things that just kind of rose to the surface that I noticed about their life. And that's where I kind of would call this traits of a disciple. Traits of a disciple. Just normal things that are right there in the text as you read their life that really, to me, stand out. I want to, I want to share with you. Now, we're not going to get through all of them today. just got to tell you that up front. But uh, we'll go through them in just a moment. I want to kind of read all of them to you guys right now just so you can kind of get a little bit of an idea as to what we'll be looking at to kind of uh, whet your appetite. A little bit of a trailer. So next slide, we see this. Uh, Number one, we see that these guys were stewards of, uh, good stewards of both natural and supernatural gifts. Meaning uh, they had these certain gifts we'll look at in a moment as well as supernatural gifts. God doing something. Above the natural, beyond the natural ability in this context, it was healing someone. Um, they, they were stewards of these things. Now, how do you steward supernatural gifts? Uh, really, you know, it's not that you can't cause them to happen. They, they happen as you trust God. It's a matter of just being there. So we'll come back to that in a second. Secondly, I'll just go through this quickly. Secondly, as we see that they had uh, a sense of courage and boldness. Thirdly, we see perseverance uh, in spite of deep challenges. Fourthly, we see compassion. And in this story, they approach a person that is uh, 
that has a malady, a sickness, and rather than turning their back on them or shunning them or turning away, they actually turn to them, which is what the nature of the gospel does. It turns you to those whom have the greatest needs. And that's what compassion is. It's, it's, it's coming alongside and demonstrating a sense of common suffering with somebody else. Um, fifthly, we see they have a sense of humility, that when these local uh, people uh, begin to worship Paul and Barnabas, which is part of the story, which is crazy. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, remember that. Um, they had humility. They didn't absorb the worship. They didn't, like, take it upon themselves, like C-3PO in what, Empire Strikes Back. Is that right? Is that what it is? Whatever. Return of the Jedi. Sorry. Sorry. Heresy. Sorry. I get it. Um, and then, sixthly, we see wisdom. They have this sense of wisdom where they communicate the message of the gospel to this a group of people that did not have any context or understanding of who Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob were, the forefathers of the Jewish faith. Um, and then seventhly, we see they have this sense of persistence. They just keep going on and on. And then eighthly, we see that they have this element of connectedness. There's a home base. They're part of a local church family. They're part of a community. So these are just traits that kind of come out as I observe their lives. And we'll look at them one by one. Again, each week, each one of these can basically take a week in of themselves. I'm not going to necessarily do that, I don't think, um, unless kind of since maybe God wants us to, but I don't think that's the case. But what I want to do today is we're just going to begin to jump in and take a look at these traits that we see here. Before we do, one of the things I want to really emphasize before we jump in is that when these guys come into the city uh, in which they're ministering, communicating, talking, they're interacting with, um, like I said, pagans, non followers of God. They're not following Jesus. They're not following Yahweh. These are not recipients of the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means they're not necessarily living according to a particular morale or element of faith in Yahweh or, or Jesus. So, but the fact of the matter is they are religious. They're not religious in terms of following Jesus. Of course, there is a sense of religiousness. In fact, Many scholars and sociologists would say that we live in kind of a post-Christian world, which I, I would totally agree with that. Christianity at one point in America had ma- massive impact. Um, but today, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people that would not associate or ascribe to any form of Christianity, let alone any form of religion. You can just kind of download the stats on Google and kind of figure out what they are. But we live in a world, in a lot of ways, that still nonetheless is very spiritual. People believe in some form of spirituality. People believe in some form of of entity. They might not know what it is. And every once in a while, you will talk with people that say, I don't believe in God. So uh, there is a growing number of agnostics and a growing number of of atheists within our culture, within our world today. Um, But one of the things I've discovered is that a lot of times people, they might have false concepts of who God is, And they reject that God. So, for example, there's times I'll talk with people and they'll say things like, I don't believe in God. And I always like to ask by way of dialogue, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And by their conversation and communicating to me the God they don't believe in, oftentimes we can reach a point where I can actually agree with them. Where I can say, listen, I don't agree with that God either. I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist just like you in that God. I don't believe in that God. And that oftentimes opens up doors because they're sort of shocked, like, well, wait a minute, how can a pastor be an atheist? Because I don't believe in that God. That God that you described is not the God of Scripture. 
The God that you described is very different than the God of Scripture. The God that you described is a God that's more consistent with uh, how we've deemed or how culture at large is created or God that was kind of caricatured in a Simpsons episode or something. But it's not the God of Scripture. And so one of the things that's important, I think, in dealing with our culture is to recognize that every human being, here's the big idea I want to point out, every human being is a disciple. We follow Something, someone, some idea, some notion, some concept has influence over our lives. And the influence that that has over us will always lead us to some level of action. Okay? So here's the thesis. Here's the point that I want to make. Paul and Barnabas are contrasted with the other inhabitants of the city. Which are, everyone's a disciple. Paul and Barnabas are disciples of Jesus. They follow Jesus, and their lives take upon itself a certain arc, all right, trajectory, a certain uh, characteristic trait that we're going to look at, which we'll look at those. But I would also argue that the other people in this society that we see in Acts chapter 14 also are disciples. They're not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of uh, pagan folk religion. They're disciples of um, other forms of ideas and concepts and ideologies that are prevalent within that culture. So here's, here's where I want to bring this home and begin to just take a look at some of these elements within the text. Um, every one of us in this room are a disciple of something, someone. You're either, either following Jesus and your life is beginning to take shape and form that has these characteristic traits. Like your life, in some way, as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, there should be these elements. These, these should become prevalent within your life. Or there will be characteristic traits that will be a prevalent that we see within other disciples following other false entities, false gods, false ideologies. So let's jump in the text and just take a look at a handful of quick little observations that I, I notice with regard to uh, traits of disciples in the context of being non-believers or, or pagans. Again, I'm not necessarily using the word pagan in a, uh, a mean, derogatory type of a way, just the way that it would have been used within the context here. So listen to a couple of these, and I'll just I'll move on to jumping into taking a look at this. So first of all, we see in the interaction that Paul has with these people, that in verse 2, chapter 14, verse 2, we see that these people, again, these are some of the traits of those who are following false ideologies, pagan religion. First of all, we see that there's a sense of gossip and backbiting. So take a look at verse 2. It says, it says, But the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So first of all, we see that word poison. They poison their minds against false believers. So again, if you want to think of it this way, the narrative that they lived in, the narrative that they were creating, that was informing them, that they were part of, consisted of lies, um, non-facts, poisoning someone else's mind. In fact, this is a really fascinating word that's actually translated in my Bible as poisoned their minds. Uh, It's actually a Greek word, kakao. Um, It also appears in the book of Acts chapter 7. Just listen to how it's used in Acts chapter 7, which is fascinating. (coughs) It says this, Pharaoh exploited our people and he oppressed them. The word oppressed is the same word, kakao. It's it's, the, it's, it's actually language that comes from Pharaoh's kingdom. So here's a question. How does Pharaoh govern his people? How are the recipients of Pharaoh? What type of attitudes 
uh, dictate, what are the traits of people under Pharaoh's regime? Poison. <laughs> what does it look like to live under the heavy hand of Pharaoh? Looks like you're poisoned. Just think about that. It looks like you're poisoned. It looks like you've, you've drinking something that has soured you, that has destroyed you, has led to a sense of believing, imbibing something that's non-factual, that's non-truth. So we see, first of all, this idea of gossip and backbiting. Now, that's what oftentimes leads to a sense of uh, saying nasty things about other people. Another thing that we see is, verse 4, is a sense of dividedness. These people were divided. It says, but the people of the city, again, the, the element is, who, who are they? Where are these people from? They're of the city. They are imbibing the concepts, the ideas, the ideologies, the false myths and uh, uh, religions and cults of the city. Again, every ancient culture had various types of gods. It wasn't like monolithic religion throughout the ancient known world. So you can go into one village and see what types of gods were worshipped there. And you can travel, travel 60 miles away into an entirely different village. And the gods are radically different. The types of practices may look a little bit similar, but the god might have a different name. And why not? These would be called cult religions. And so it says in verse uh, 6, it says, uh, but some of the people of the city, sorry, verse 4, uh, they were divided. And some of the Jews, they sided with them, and some sided with the apostles. And then it goes on to say, and then there's an attempt by the Jews and Gentiles to bring about some form of violence, which is the next one. But think about this. There's a sense of dividedness. They were divided. They, they were putting down, sewing, uh, throwing down hard lines in the sand, saying, you cannot cross this. If you cross this, we will divide. We will demonstrate our wrath and our rage against you. The third thing we see is a sense of violence. Verse 5, it says they actually picked up stones to throw against them. So the sense of violent reaction against those that are in opposition to you. Um, let, me, let me put it this way. Violence that rises in our hearts towards somebody is not healthy react, reactiveness. All right? If, if we oftentimes uh, react in ways that are violent because we have been crossed or because we've been checked or because we've been contradicted, that's not healthy. That ultimately leads to brokenness and ruin and destruction. And that would be something that you really want to take into special care and to consider and think about. But this is what we see here in the people that are formed and shaped by pagan religion. That there's a sense of violence. They're, they're ready to kill somebody. Um, we have a term for that. We call it scapegoating. Uh, we look for the enemy. We scapegoat them. And once we've selected whoever the enemy is, and it's going to be different in every culture, every society, every scenario. If you're white and you live in the burb, suburbs, uh, you're going to find a scapegoat. A scapegoat might be at somebody of a minority, ethnicity, different color skin, and you'll scapegoat them. And as long as you can rally the teams of people around and say they're the bad people, then you feel better about yourself. And what ends up happening is it leads to violence. It's shocking, but within the gospel... Jesus actually basically, he's constantly calling people to come out of that narrative, to, to avoid it, to deny it, to turn away from it. That is a narrative of Pharaoh, Caesar, Trump, any other Obama administration. It's the, it's the narrative of the media. If it's the narrative that's informing and shaping you, please see where it leads. It's opposite the gospel. It's opposite. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus offers. This is amazing what we see happening here in this passage. 
that they're violent. Peter, or Jane, uh, I'm sorry, Barnabas and, and Paul, they're not reacting in violence. In fact, they're, in this context, they're leaving quietly and humbly. And later on, they actually humbly allow their enemies to attack them without picking up sword, without fighting back, without physical violent resistance. It's a radically different story. It's radical different cultural uh, conflicts that are going on right here. So the uh, fourth thing is we see a sense of anxiety. So when Paul and Barnabas, they come in and they're communicating the message of the gospel and people's eyes are being transformed, um, there is a sense where they end up healing this particular guy. And within the story, uh, the city comes into this uproar and it's, you can see there's a couple things that are going on. One, there's this overwhelming sense of superstition uh, that's, that's controlling them. Um, but from that superstition is this sense of anxiety. Anxiety is, is driving them. So just listen to the four things again. That are traits of disciples of somebody other than Jesus. Uh, we see, again, first of all, divisiveness, violence, anxiety. And these are the things, and, and lies, these are the things that have shaped these, this culture in which we live in. So again, think about this in your context of your own life. I mean, if you just pause and think about everything I just read, is this not the narrative of, of news? Lies, divisiveness, anxiety, violence. Maybe, maybe not so much violence in terms of physical violence, but violence in the words that are used on both sides. Both left, both right, both Republican, both liberal, Democrat. The, the fact of the matter is, is this is the culture. This, uh, look, it doesn't matter if it's red or blue or white or green or whatever. This is the culture of our world, and it's being fed us. And oftentimes, if you are not careful to resist it, and the way that we resist it is not necessarily by buttoning our lips and turning away, but by receiving something better. This, this is by tuning our hearts to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this, this is what we feed on. This is what we feed our souls with. This is what transforms us. This is what allows us to, rather than treat others of a different order as a scapegoat, frees us to hug them, frees us to embrace them. This is what it means when Jesus says, you know, love your enemy. Not kill them, love your enemy. It's because it's what the gospel does. It is exactly what God did to you. God didn't come to us as his enemies and destroy us and crush us, but he was crushed for us. And this is what we see. And so we see guys like Peter and James and John and Paul and the apostles and the early followers of Jesus that they were being transformed by this message. And they were now going out into all the world, into these pagan societies that were under the yoke of this false narrative. And again, I would suggest to you, that narrative has not stopped since day one. And it continues on into today's culture. Only now it's through social media, Fox News, MSNBC, Mother Jones, whatever news publication you want to think of. It just, it's the same narrative repackaged either for a red, red uh, right-leaning person or a blue left-leaning person. It's the same narrative that always leads to the same stuff. Lies, division, violence, and anxiety. 
And Jesus is always calling us to come see there's a different way. There's a different way, a better way to truly be human, to truly engage with life that comes from above, comes from beyond this world. It's a life and a love that lays itself down for others. This is what we see with Jesus doing for us. This is what Paul is going around communicating and preaching. Now, with that being said, let's jump in and begin to take a look at some of these elements of these traits of uh, the disciples that are following Jesus. So, again, first of all, I just want to look at the very first one that we looked at. We'll just kind of actually stop right there because um, I could spend a lot of time talking about each one of these, but I'm just going to stop looking at the very first one. So, first of all, good stewards of both natural and supernatural giftings. Now, what we see with Paul and Barnabas is these guys is basically flourishing within their giftings. And listen to ways in which this kind of unpacks itself throughout the entire chapter. So, first of all, we see that they're preaching. So Acts chapter 14, verse 7, later on in verse 25, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas, they were going on preaching. They were communicating. The word preaching that's used here is like announcing and shouting and proclaiming, not necessarily yelling, shouting, but like shouting, proclaiming. And oftentimes that's what they would do. They would gather in these public settings and they would proclaim. They would speak forth. That's what preaching is. They would speak forth. Obviously, Paul and Barnabas had these gifts of being able to do that. Secondly, we see that they were teaching, Acts 14, uh, verses 21 and 22. Um, they were giving instruction. That's what the word teaching means. It's to sit down. It's not so much proclamative. It's more instructive. It's more sitting down and unpacking for somebody the ideas. In the early book of, of Acts, it describes them sharing the apostles' doctrine. And, and I think that's what these guys were doing, is they were trying to bring about this connection between this great, vast uh, declaration we call the gospel and how the gospel then begins to work its way out in your life. We would call that instructive. And so we, we teach, we talk, and, when, and that's what Paul is doing. They're going around using uh, many, multiple opportunities to do both, to preach as well as to teach. We would call these like word ministries. Also, exhortation is the third one. Uh, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 22, we're also told that Paul exhorted. The idea of exhortation is like a call to action. This is the, like a cheerleader, somebody who like gives you the information. They're like, now do this. You guys can do this. You guys are empowered by the Spirit of God. Do this. Um, exhortation, that's what this is all about. And then we see, fourthly, the sense of administration. Um, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, a little bit of an interesting story here, is that when Paul planted these churches, um, and again, I, I want to remove some of this mystery of what it means to plant a church, because no matter, uh, what, depending upon what type of background you've come from, when you hear someone planting a church, um, it might range all over the place. But I want to remove some of the major mystery uh, out of this. I mean, when Paul, his vision, what he had as he went into this, this ancient Roman Empire, was to, maybe a better way to think about this, was to create what I would call Jesus communities. These are just small groups, small gatherings of people who had found life in Jesus. They believed the Jesus story. They believed the message of Christ, that God was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself, that God was through and operating through Jesus to forgive us, to wash us, to cleanse us, to make us brand new. And as they were understanding and receiving the life that came from Jesus, they would get together. They would get together in houses. And oftentimes, uh, again, to think about this, it might be uh, someone's house. It's the, they open the, their, their place up. And imagine me between maybe five to maybe 35 people coming together maybe weekly, sometimes even daily, to break bread. They would have meals. They would eat food. You know, imagine some people bring baklava and hummus and pita bread and, you know, whatever, all these types of great 
uh, Mediterranean food. And they would gather together and they would eat bread and they would discuss uh, who Jesus is and they would uh, go over what we would call the Apostles' Doctrine. Now, remember back in those days, they didn't necessarily have Bibles. So, you know, that might sound kind of shocking. But they, what they did have is they had these teachings that were beginning to be written down by the Apostle Paul. They had letters that were basically being circulated by Paul. We call them, for the most part, the New Testament. And they would read over these things. They would discuss them and talk about them. And they would pray for one another. And they would sing some songs. So in some ways, it, looked very, it would look very similar to like what we do on a regular basis. That's, that, that's what a Jesus community was. Another shocking element about the Jesus communities is these Jesus communities were made of radically different people. And this was really shocking to the first century because it was really hard for Rome to gather people together and, and declare them one, one nation, one community, one empire, because you would have these radically different tribes and uh, ways of thinking about their heritage and coming together, there was inevitably this mentality of like, well, our tribe is way better than your tribe or our background, we're way better than yours or because we have money and wealth and ability, we're way better than you who are slaves in the uh, Roman Empire. And yet in the Christian communities, you had all sorts of people coming together. You had male and female, which there were radical uh, incongruencies, at least perceptions uh, with regard to male and female in the first century. Women were not viewed with great high honor. Uh, same thing with radical different ethnicities coming together. That's one of the reasons why Paul would say there's Jew and Gentile. There, you're no longer Jew and Gentile. The idea is that you don't turn away from your ethnicity. It's that in Christ, they don't uh, set forth an order. You are, you are not organized or ordered based upon the color of your skin in God's kingdom. This is amazing. This was never heard of until then. In fact, there are parts of the world today, it's part of the whole caste system within India. If you have dark skin, uh, you are part of a lower caste than those of lighter skin that are perceived as having greater wealth, greater ability, greater knowledge, greater whatever. But the point of the matter is, we see in the ancient world, Paul had this vision of creating these little communities sitting around Jesus, we call them Jesus communities, and we would call these churches. So, you have to have some level of order and organization within these groups, all right? Um, and this is where the idea of administration comes in, where Paul administered. Paul and Barnabas, they organized. Now, it's important, I think, to note that a lot of times people get a little bit nervous about this concept of organization and ordering with regard to the church because there's a tendency to be like, I'm against anything organized, Look, let me just simply say this. That, that you cannot live according to that statement. If you've ever said that, please at least think about what you're saying. It does not make sense. We live in a society, and if you say, I'm anti-politics, and I'm anti-policy, and I'm anti-organization, you have driven here on a road. You are driving in a car that somebody made, and there's great order and organization that went into that. There's a great assembly line that was established for that. And there's managers and sub-managers and other people that were part of the assembly line to create that. There are systems that were put in place in order to create the culture and society that you want. We, we drive on roads because we have, uh, we have officials that use money that was part of our taxes to pave them. We have electricity in every house that we can turn on. So we can turn on uh, the heater in the morning with gas coming into the house and toilets that flush and water that's somewhat clean. Uh, we don't, the, the fact of the matter is all of these are the result of someone administrating them. Does that make sense to you? 
The same is true with the church. Now, question is, is can things become, especially in the context of the church, become over-administered? Where you have institutions. Of course, in the same way it happens in governments, where you have these institutions, where they're just built for themselves, rather than being a blessing for the larger community. When the church is organized in a way that it can be a blessing to the larger community, is that thumbs up, thumbs down? You guys not sure? It's thumbs up, yes. Okay, if the church comes together and it's organized so that it creates constant blessing for the pastors alone so they can have their own personalized jet and have a nice big house and have fancy clothes and all of these things and the rest of the church community suffers. Down, yeah. That's institutionalized. That's what's bad. Organization is good. We need organization. We, and that is based upon the, the benefit of administration. It's a good thing. In fact, I'll give you one more analogy and i move on to the last one. It is the concept, I read a book several years ago, it was really good. It was, um, I think, called The Trellis and the Vine. And the big idea within the book, in short, is basically about church order, church government, church, you know, big, big words that we often don't typically like to think about. But they're really important. The idea is that you have a, a vine which has organic growth. It's just growing. It's, it's got life within it because it's just part of this thing called nature. It's amazing. God created it. It's designed. It's awesome. And it brings forth fruit. But uh, what we've learned over the years of you know, humanity, that if you take that vine and just let it grow in the ground, it will then be subject to mold and other types of uh, pests that will eat it and destroy it and take away all of its ability to completely maximize its fruit. But what we learned is that if you actually create something that allows it to prop up, we would call it a trellis, then you can maximize the fruit. It will grow. And the same thing is with the regard to the church. This is what Paul is doing. He's creating trellises. So that this organic thing called the church can radically grow. So that people can come to know who they are. So that people can develop as disciples in Jesus. You need that. You have to have some level of organization, a.k.a. administration. So, look, last thing I want to do before we just jump into this and finish up is, I'll, I'll move on to the next one. I want to read a passage, uh, and then I'll come back to this. It's the word healing um, that we see within the story that Paul actually lifts this guy and prays over him, and he's healed within the story, uh, verses 9 and 10. Now, again, I want to use the word uh, steward. How do you steward both natural and supernatural gifts? Well, let's first of all deal with how do you steward natural gifts. One, um, we'll read a passage and I'll kind of explain how you steward this. The second thing, how do you steward supernatural gifts? Again, you can't create supernatural functionality. You can't just wish something to happen, it'll happen. Like we're talking, it's a miracle. Like a miracle means it's supernatural. It's beyond the, the natural realm, the natural form. How, how does it happen and how does this take place? I, I would suggest... The way that supernatural stuff happens is you're present. You're present. You're in touch with the hurt and the brokenness of people. You're aware of their pain, of their grief, of their challenges, of their sicknesses, of their diseases, of what they're suffering, what they're going through. You are, it begins by awareness of the pain in this world. But then secondarily, it, it, it continues with, with an awareness of the presence of God. That God is here in the midst of the presence in the person of myself. And God, if, if you want to use me as an agent of healing, as an agent of blessing, as an agent of, of growth to this person, then, then here I am. I, that's how I would say you steward natu- supernatural giftings. 
we don't create this. We don't make this happen. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes God doesn't. And there's all sorts of theories and why sometimes people add guilt trips because you don't have enough faith. Whatever. They, look, at the end of the day, I think it's simply about us being aware of the hurt of the world around us, being aware of the power of God that's mighty to save. And as we're aware of these two things, we walk through life in awareness. Look, let me just put it this way. If we walk through life doing nothing but this, we're at a bus stop and we're doing nothing but this, we're in line at a grocery store doing nothing but this, if that's all we're doing in life, are, are, are you aware or are you not aware? You're absolutely not aware. You're playing into a system, I think, that is dehumanizing and desensitizing us to the pain. I'm not, I'm not look, I, I'm guilty, all right? I'm not trying to make fun of you. I've done the same thing. Um, my, my aim in life is to do everything I can to, like, stop using that and to undo that. But the point of the matter is I'm, I'm trapped just like everyone else. But again, those are things I think Jesus wants to rescue us from so that we can be aware of the pain of people around us, simultaneously be aware of the power of God that is over us, and be that link, be that, that point of contact for people. That's, that's what I think it means to be a steward of these types of gifts of God. So, I'm going to read a passage, and I'll finish. Um, listen to what Paul has to say later. He wrote this letter to a community of Jesus people in Rome. I'm not sure if it's up there. It's Romans chapter 12. Just read it, and just listen to it. Listen to what Paul has to say. He's actually going to be talking a little bit about uh, just what God calls us to do and to be engaged with. So he starts off with this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you uh, to give your bodies to God because of all that he does and has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that, you will find, that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God Transform you. Again, this constant reiteration. There are paths set before us. There's a path that's part of this natural order of things that leads to a sense of non-truths and division and anxiety and violence and rage. That's just part of the system. What Paul is inviting us to say, be transformed by the kingdom of the good king, of the true king, the living king, the lasting king, the king that though he was put to death, by the system, because that's what violent people do. They put people to death. Jesus was put to death by the system. But he conquered death and the system by saying, there's another way. There's a different way. And Paul's saying, I'm inviting you to be transformed by this God that conquered both the system and where the system takes us every single time, a.k.a. death. And he's inviting us to be transformed. And then he goes on to say, he says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. So just uh, a metaphor that Paul uses is to describe this thing that he would call the body of Christ. And again, think of a Jesus community, our Jesus community. Uh, each of us are part of one body, the, the one body being Jesus. Paul saw this metaphor as being we're all linked to, connected to, the very life force, we would call him Jesus. The, the, the power over death is in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are part of that body. And Paul elaborates and says, we all have different functions. We all have different giftings, right? Some of you are like a big toe. Some of you are an eyebrow. Some of you are a nose. Some of you have good sight. You can see things. You have discernment. Some of you have the, you're the you know, portion of the brain. You, you're really smart. You can think. Um, 
the, the, the metaphor that Paul's kind of elaborating on a little bit, that we all have different parts, different, different functions, and when we all work together, it brings life. So what happens when a body is not in harmony with itself? Let's say, for example, uh, rather than living in ease, where everything's humming and flowing, it's not. It's diseased. It's not functioning properly. We call it disease. It's, it's when the body is not flowing, functioning together. It's not cooperating with itself, maybe by way of a foreign invader, uh, a virus or a bacteria or something, or something inside where the body turns on itself. We call these autoimmune disease, where the white blood cells might fight and attack the joints, or the, uh, uh, or the, uh, the spinal fluid, uh, like MS and whatnot. The fact of the matter is, this is what we would describe disease. But when the body is acting in a way where it's fluid and it's functioning well, you have harmony, you have wholeness. And Paul has this vision. He says, look, I envision the body of Christ functioning in a way where we, everybody that has its own unique part. Look, what Paul goes on to state, and I'll wrap it up with this thought. He says in verse 6, he says, In his grace, God has given us different gifts uh, doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, here's what Paul is going to begin to describe, how we steward the gifts that we have been given. He says, if God's given you the ability to prophesy, to speak forth, then Paul says, speak out with as much faith that God has given you. He says, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be, uh, he says, be encouraging. If it is giving uh, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. He says in verse 9, he says, don't just pretend to love others. Really, truly love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other and with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. This is Paul's simple way of saying, look, all of you, all of you are important. All of you as redeemed image bearers in Christ have an important function within this body of Christ. So what that means is that in this church right now, in this Jesus community, the way that we would translate and understand and think about this is that what this means is that every single one of you, you have a gift. What are the gifts that God's given you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever like asked yourself, what are the special, unique functions and giftings that God's given you. Now, again, I would make a distinction. There are natural giftings and supernatural giftings. Um, what are the natural giftings? Let's start right there. What are the natural giftings that God's given you? What are the things that you are good at? You, your life feels a sense of completeness when you are doing fill in the blank. What is that? All right? Some of you, you like to teach. So you teach and instruct others actually as a teacher in a classroom, or you teach, you instruct others with music or writing or uh, creating YouTube videos to help instruct other people on how to do something. That's a gift of teaching. Um, use those gifts as a way to continue to find life in what God's created you to Encouragement. Um, if God's given you the gift of encouragement, the way I think that could come across within the context here is we always have people that need encouragement. Um, that pe- people just, they're going through tough times. They are, by definition, discouraged. They don't have courage. They feel broken. They feel at a loss. They need encouragement. If that's your gift, you are the person that when people walk away from you, they say things like, you're awesome. Thank you. I feel so full when I walk away from you. That maybe your gift is encouragement. 
The body of Christ needs that. How could that function maybe on a Sunday morning or in a small group? Um, just be aware of people. Again, it's being present, being aware of the fact you may be sitting next to somebody that is discouraged. God may want to use you to breathe and bring encouragement to their life. That's what it looks like to be aware, to steward the giftings. That's one of the traits of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let me give you one final story and I'm done. When I was a brand new Christian, I was about 15, almost 16 years old. In fact, it was right when I turned 16, I got my car. I got involved in a small group. And uh, the name of the couple that I would go to uh, were, were Mike and Sandy Auction. And I would drive uh, from my house, under their house. And they had a Bible study, I think it was like on Tuesday night or so, something like that. And I, I was that kid that would show up an hour and a half early. All right, the Bible study started at like 7.30, 7 o'clock, whatever. I would show up at like 5.30, 5 o'clock. And uh, they were just sitting down at dinner, like knocking on the door. And they're like, hey, what's up? And they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, we're, we're just sitting down to eat. Oh, sweet. That's, yeah, I'll, I'll have some. Like, I would invite myself in. I would sit down. I would eat. Like, I was that guy. So if you have that person in your Bible study right now, just, just know that that's your pastor. That, that was him. Um, and I was the guy that would stay as, as late as, as I could. I, I, I needed it. My, my, my family divorced. And I didn't have that sense of stability. I, wouldn't, I didn't go home to a family that was like all full of love and community and relationship and belonging. I didn't have that. So they provided that for me. Their gifts were encouragement and kindness and hospitality. And they shined. They changed my life. Just simply because they opened their house. They allowed others to dirty their carpets. They allowed others to soil their bathroom. They allowed others eat their food in their refrigerator. They allowed their grocery bill to go up every single month just so that they could change lives. They weren't Bible preachers. They weren't pastoring a church. But they used the gifts that God gave them to change lives. I was one of them. What's God given you? Steward what God's given you. Steward it. What has he given you? So think about that. Be present. We are all disciples of somebody, something. All of us have something to offer within the body of Christ. Because all of us matter to God. But the fact of the matter is, we're all going to be disciples. So you have to look at the traits of your life. What are the traits of your life? Is it generosity? Is it giving? Is it stewarding the gifts? Or is it Violence, anxiety, rage. Those traits should frighten you. Not, I'm not talking about living according to a narrative of fear. But I'm saying they should at least be a red sounding alarm in your head that you are maybe committed in your loyalties to something other than Yahweh. Pharaoh's government always was a constant cycle of fear and angst and violence. And when God rose up and called his people out of Egypt, he was also calling them to a new loyalty. He's saying, I'll be your God. And you'll have no other gods besides me. One of the very first commandments that God gave the people of Israel was the most shocking one of all. He says, mark the seventh day. It's a day of rest. That's a counter-command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's commands was always the same. Make bricks, make more bricks, make more bricks, more fear, more anxiety, more stress, more distrust, more constant despair, more work, and it's never done because there's never any rest within Pharaoh's kingdom. 
Yahweh says, take a day and rest. Catch your breath because Yahweh is a God that gives life. This is what Jesus calls us to. It's always an invitation. So I want to invite you to examine the traits of your life and ask, follow those traits back to whom you follow. What Lord, what master you've given the loyalties of your heart to. And from that, receive the gracious gift from God to find rest in him. So, I'm done. You're welcome. We're going to respond. And why don't we all stand? The way we're going to respond is we're going to partake of communion. We're going to sing a couple songs. We're going to just give some silent pause to reflect. And one of the things we do is just in quietness, we quiet our heart before God. And I realize that, you know, in our culture... Silence is, is, is hard for us because we, we like having background music. We like, to some degree, we have this strange relationship with white noise that we need there to be some level of sound and stuff happening because I think it has this tendency to drown out the reality that we face rather than facing our anxieties and turning our anxieties over to God. We try to just drown them out with entertainment with sound, with white noise. And they never really go away. They might be silenced for a moment, be paused for a moment, but they always come back. And they come back with a greater fervency and destructiveness. And the invitation for you now is to just quiet your heart and to invite the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you God's life. To turn from the old things, we would call that repent. To turn away from those things that are destructive and evil and sinful. And turn to God through Jesus.